Nature Solutionaries is a podcast about conservationists who do amazing things for nature and bring inspiration into our lives. When Arthur Snegon was 24, he decided that instead of pursuing a master's in ecological and evolutionary biology, he would go to Central Africa to save elephants. He packed his bags and set out on an adventurous 6,000 bike and kayak expedition through the most remote areas of Cameroon, Gabon, Congo, Democratic Congo, the Central African Republic and Chad to get to know, document and subsequently change the dark reality of poaching elephants for their tusks. He thought he would stay for a year, but 10 years later Arthur, along with his colleagues from the NGO Safe Elephants, are still helping elephants survive. Even though the elephant population decline is daunting, there are ways to help elephants. And that's exactly what we'll talk about in this episode. Arthur, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, when we were arranging this interview a week ago, you said that you were recovering from malaria. And I was doing a bit of research, and if I'm not mistaken, this was the 10th malaria that you had. Is that right? Hi. Yes, you're absolutely right. That was exactly my 10th um, malaria. And at the same time, I would guess that, that that one was the most difficult for my body. And unlike the, the other malarias, which I mainly treated at home with uh, taking you know pills, this time I, I got to be hospitalized uh, in a hospital in Prague, Czech Republic, uh, just after my return from Central African Chad. Mm -hmm. Wow. And why was the recovery so hard? Difficult to establish the one factor, but uh, I would say that was a combination of uh, my general exhaustment after quite a difficult and tricky mission, both physically and, and mentally. And some time lapse before between the beginning of the symptoms and the beginning of the treatment because uh, it was a kind of camouflaged uh, among other other you know physical weaknesses. So I didn't judge it well and I didn't uh, start the treatment as it should be. But you look good and you sound good. So, so <laughs> that's thanks. I'm glad you say that. That gives us hope. <laughs> so I hope that you're healthy now. Um, I watched your movie, it's called uh, Here Be Elephants, and I recommend it to everyone. Um, it's it's really great. I would say maybe not to everyone, but everyone interested in Central of Africa, course. in elephants, in poaching and so on, because it's quite a, quite a long movie, we have to admit. Yeah, that's Three true. hours, <laughs> it's not for everyone. <laughs> that's true, but it's it's divided into um, parts, so so it's, it's yes. feasible to watch it. And... Um, in one of the parts, I saw that you were eating elephant meat in front of a smuggler in Cameroon. So why did you have to eat that meat and how did it taste? Well, you hit the the, the dark spot. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, part of my long-term investigation. Uh, these days, uh, I was acting as a field investigator, uh, partially on my own. Then I joined... Uh, well-known and uh, today very appreciated project uh, called LAGA, mm -hmm. Last Great Ape uh, organization, organization in Cameroon, the founding organization of the Eagle Network. And 
I get to stay several weeks uh, deep in the jungle in southern Cameroon, not directly in the jungle because uh, my main focus was uh, uh, where poachers, smugglers, traffickers. So I, I visited several villages around the main trafficking route between Congo, Brazzaville, uh, Gabon and Cameroon particularly. And uh, I spread the information that I was uh, about to look for ivory for commercial commercial purposes. And back in 2013, when it was, it was a good moment for a white guy to be there and ask for ivory. Within several days, I, I got to know around 20 people who are involved into the black ivory trade or illegal ivory, ivory trade uh, on different levels, you know, reaching from the low level of uh, really poor poachers of the of the indigenous uh, Baka ethnic group uh, to you know mid-level traffickers to international traffickers and to administration workers and officers who were kind of covering facilitating uh, this these these operations and of course uh, not on the free free uh, free of charge basis so you know in this environment I got to invent many stories, many approaches, how to uh, how to get close to those guys, because our ultimate goal with the LAGA organization was, of course, to put hands on these uh, traffickers who who would prove to be to be uh, guilty or, you know, directly involved uh, and to catch them red handed um, a secret or spy video from, uh, you know, from the hidden camera or audio recording are of course not enough to to put those guys uh, to the you know, in front of the trial maybe it was it would be enough to put them in front of trial but it would not be enough to convict them of course so that's why uh, I, I got to play this role for uh, several weeks and one of my approach was to play a naive tourist who, who was interested in everything you know concerning central african lifestyle and i was asking about elephant meat of course mm -hmm. You know, as a delicacy to put it on my Facebook, etc., etc. And really, a few days after uh, the trafficker, which I already suspected to be involved in ivory trade as well, he brought me to a local street restaurant. <laughs> I would say a drive-through. You know, uh, you know, ready to ready to eat, and there was an elephant meat. So I couldn't, mm, I couldn't step out of the of the role, and uh, I took a piece. Uh, it was delicious. Uh, it was good, well prepared. Uh, unfortunately, it came from one of the most critically endangered big mammal, I would say, worldwide. You know, the the, the forest elephant. You know, you it might have been tasty, but you must have felt disgusted. You know, because it's the animal that you love, and as you say, it's it's really endangered, and the population of of elephants throughout the world and especially in Africa is dropping so much. So mm. I have some numbers here that the population of savannas and forests elephants is roughly 400,000 and the continent is losing hundreds of elephants per day. And um, as you said, like the worst years were 2011 to 2013, mm -hmm. but between 2007 and 2014, the population of savannas elephants declined by 30%, whereas the population of forest elephants dropped even by 62%. So that's that's just horrible. And 
Could you explain? And even though the the decline dropped off a little bit after 2013, it's still it's still threatening for for elephants. So, can you explain what causes this massive decline? What are the drivers? The main driver is uh, poaching, and not for elephant meat, as uh, as uh, the listener might guess from our first first topic we, we've covered, but for ivory. The elephant meat is only a minor byproduct, which sometimes occur, but very, very often doesn't. Uh, the main commodity, commodity uh, what poachers uh, seek for uh, is ivory, which price varies sometimes now, even during the coronavirus crisis, in some areas dropped, um, but it is still way too high to for local people, local poachers, local traffickers to resist to resist this lure of of possible wealth. But as people living in Africa know, the poacher who is really you know calling the trigger never gets really rich out of uh, elephant poaching in Central Africa. It might be a case of poaching of rhinos in you know, South Africa where the price is even higher. But uh, by killing elephants, you would never get rich. Uh, people know it. Uh, but still, for some of them, it is a more lucrative alternative than uh, staying in the countryside uh, or in the, you know, undeveloped urban areas doing nothing, unfortunately. So this poaching is directly linked to lack of governance in uh, these countries. It is not a surprise that countries who have the lowest level of corruption, as I mentioned, Botswana, for instance, have the either biggest elephant population or wildlife population in general or the best trends in you know in the evolution of these uh, wildlife populations the more the country is developed stable non-corrupt the more opportunity for for wildlife uh, there is i agree that poaching is a problem but at the same time you know poaching is just a consequence of the demand so actual actually the biggest problem is the demand right the demand for ivory and other products, which today appears mainly in Far East, Vietnam, China, uh, Japan, but also in the US, you know, for, for example, in case of ivory, that this demand uh, is equally important as the lack of governance and the corruption and the failed state, you know, regimes in Africa. Because examples show that, you know, several countries can protect those uh, wildlife heritages. Of course, if the demand uh, in Asia particularly would drop to zero, then there would be almost no poaching or there would be maybe some revenge poaching, you know, for crop raiding or for some attacks to humans caused by wildlife. But um, Or some, of course, there would be poaching for meat or bushmeat in several areas which are not highly developed in, in terms of uh, agriculture or, you know, animal breeding, which would be Central Africa, definitely. But, yeah, the main poaching, which we are now internationally talking about, uh, as uh, ivory poaching, rhino whore poaching, pangolin scales trafficking, this would you know, decrease to almost a zero, zero levels. So even though uh, the elephant population decline is a gigantic problem uh, that you've just explained and one person can solve it, your organization Safe Elephants uh, has tried to come up with several solutions to safe elephants, such as investigating the illegal market, um, uh, using detection dogs, installing beehives, pro providing field equipment to rangers. So um, now let's 
we talked about the problem. Now let's talk about the solutions. So mm-hmm. um, which method do you think is the most efficient one in uh, protecting the lives of elephants in your area? Because we are not talking about Botswana and Namibia now, but about Central Africa. So that's like Chad, Gabon, um, Central um, African Republic, Cameroon, Congo. Right. We use two techniques which we've seen uh, elsewhere, but adapted them to local conditions. So in case of uh, elephants, we create beehive barriers mm-hmm. of the Kenyan beehives type. Uh, we spread them around selected fields, you know, in the distance of seven to 10 meters. They are interconnected with a wire in the height of two meters so that elephant cannot pass, but people or cattle, cattle uh, can go, go through. And once uh, the elephant wants to approach the field, either to feed on it or just pass and make a big damage by passing through, uh, they hit on this wire or field or beehives, which are colonized by very, very aggressive uh, and numerous uh, bees. Listeners from Europe would probably not be able to imagine this uh, exactly because we have really (laughs) sweet bees Uh, American listeners would maybe understand what I'm talking about, (laughs) Uh, but in Africa, the bees are really wild and and ferocious. They attack in, not in few individuals, they attack in hundreds or thousands uh, at one moment. And uh, the elephant, of course, is a mammal who is sensitive, and particularly the areas uh, around on the head are, are even more sensitive. So the bees can can hit the right spot, elephants uh, just cry, go away, or even if they break the barrier, they will not be happy to stay there and, and feed on the crops while being attacked by, by bees. And because they are intelligent animals with great memory and great senses, hearing and, and a smell, uh, usually one or two such experiences Mm, is enough for them to understand that the beehive barrier is a no-go, no-go zone, and they try to, they tend to avoid it. So, uh, from 2015 uh, in Chad and 2017 in Cameroon, you have been building these barriers, right, to improve the coexistence between humans and elephants and um, prevent potential poaching from these villagers. So, what results? Um, have these beehives achieved? Exactly. We, we've built this uh, to, at the one, uh, one hand, uh, protect the fields, which, uh, which has proven to be, to be effective. Uh, since the communication in these areas, we've selected very remote fields, very, very poor areas with sometimes non-existent uh, communication means, and we don't have a steady presence in those areas. So we don't have a <clears throat> hard data saying that it achieved, you know, 95 or whatever percent percentage of, of success. But uh, from what these farmers, involved farmers say, uh, in most, most cases, vast majority of cases, uh, these method works and elephants really respect uh, those barriers and another good outcome of the project is of course the presence of the bees uh, as uh, per se which live in bigger hives which can be easily opened easily collected without any uh, fatal damage to the to the bee nation uh, to the swarm and 
we teach farmers how to gather or collect uh, how to collect the honey and process it better and and sell on the local market honey is a community which is highly appreciated also in central africa and farmers regularly regularly say that it's because of this increase in their income that they are able to send uh, the kids to the school you know or they were able to pay hospital bills and how many places are these beehives installed so for example like how many elephants are they protecting uh, we've uh, selected eight or probably recently the ninth villages uh, in the far southwest of chad and so this comprises several um, individuals in every village which means several dozens of, of humans in every village so altogether it's several hundreds, hundreds of people who are who are involved to do to the project um, and the number of the elephants roaming around is not very clear because these are migratory elephants passing unfortunately be between the dangerous central african republic which is very often very often merged into some rebellions or or banditism and uprisings uh, and chat but there will be definitely some higher dozens of elephants in this area which uh, is not a great number if you compare it to kenya or tanzania or what uh, or south africa at all but in terms of uh, elephant populations in chat and western africa farther uh, it's already a substantial number which we have to we have to take into account uh, because there is just slightly over 1000 elephants in chat remaining so every single one counts we were talking about um preventing the human elephant conflict and that's one of the, that's one of the reasons or drivers why sir, some elephants are hunted but the bigger one is poaching and um uh, after a long investigation of the illegal ivory market with the Ministry of Environment of Congo, Police and the Eagle Network, uh, in January and February 2021, you helped arrest six smugglers and confiscate 101 kgs of ivory, AK-47 bullets and a Toyota car. So if it's not a top secret, uh, can you tell us how you got into the underworld of poachers and smugglers? This uh, last operation of this of this kind, which uh, which appeared in Congo, uh, was an outcome of a long-term investigation, which I partially carried on distance because of the lockdowns in Congo and restriction in travels. Nowadays, those people have phones. Some of them have smartphones, and of course, uh, especially during the the pandemic's uh, restrictions, they were also looking for new markets and. When you approach the right person in a manner mm, he wants or he, he needs, then you have the chance to, to be able to communicate even on distance, get some uh, evidence uh, of uh, you know names, numbers, uh, recordings, pictures, videos, and so on. So even the modern technologies can help us uh, because poachers and traffickers also use that. And the ring of uh, people which finally ended in the, in the jail, in the economic capital of Congo in Pont Noir uh, was a group was spreading from the city of Pont Noir, which is a main international hub, uh, airport and port, maritime port at the same time. Within those arrested, there were guys working as a police or gendarmerie uh, at the airport, facilitating the, the smuggling through it. There was an active uh, military guy 
who was uh, delivering who was delivering ammunition for the poaching operations in the field because this is costly it's not like that uh, a poor villager would decide one day uh, tomorrow he, w- he would go poaching it is uh, de- you know top bottom demand that uh, there is a rich guy or well placed guys very often it's a military uh, person who has access for ammo who has access for for AKs or or other rifles mm, and he goes to his it can be his own village you know his uh, like original village he has na- he has nephews he has uh, you know younger siblings and he said hey now i'm on the leaf uh, you can take my gun you can go poaching you can go to poach elephants and then uh, you know mm-hmm. i would pay you some <laughs> something uh, at the end so this is a very often scenario so this guy was uh, providing uh, ammo then there was an ex national park ranger which was actually in the middle of uh, this circle unfortunately uh, not far away from uh, the city of pont noir there is a beautiful absolutely stunning uh, national park Conquati Duli, which is directly adjacent to, to Gabonese border and to the Atlantic to the Atlantic Ocean. And there is a, a nice uh, population of forest elephants and within the several last years they are dramatically or brutally uh, slaughtered for, for ivory. Uh, so this ex-ranger was of course able to you know to track the the right people in the field who have access to poachers or who poach on themselves. And he knew the routes, how to, to smuggle uh, the contraband through the one not very well working uh, checkpoint. So that was the scale of, uh, of the people involved, which we were able to, uh, you know, to catch red-handed in several operations. We've launched this operation a few mo- months prior the, the, the arrest on our own as safe elephants, as... Uh, Mm, you know, as a Czech organization, organization with some local informal collaborants or uh, collaborators, uh, and then once it started to be clear to me that uh, there there will be a chance for a successful operation, uh, I approached the local Ministry of Environment. I approached the Gendarmerie, you know, the kind of police in Congo, and uh, also then in collaboration with the. PALF, which is Eagle Network in, in Congo, we prepared everything so that even upon the arrest, which is only the beginning of the chain of, uh, of steps to be made, uh, nobody gets out of the jail because of his uh, connections or of his uh, money. So in several operations, we've got this uh, with 101 kg of ivory. Most of it was raw not worked ivory which was just cut in pieces uh, so that it can be easily smuggled or easily hidden uh, but some of it and that was uh, also a side side job of the arrested gendarme was already carved into asian chopsticks into some necklaces or or bracelets and this was meant to be to be sold mainly to to asia and smuggled through the airport and how can you know that um, when you're um, investigating the market, the people you work with won't reveal your identity or that they will not be corrupt, you know? How can you trust them? Unless you know those people for for a long time or you really trust them, you, you never know. Uh, you just approach a, a unit. Uh, in this case, I was uh, I was quite lucky because uh, the the local representative of the ministry channeled me directly to the head of gendarmerie in the whole region which uh, seems to be a professional and nice guy. 
and he assigned to me his one of his uh, sergeant who also seems to be a you know straight uh, straight guy so in this case at least on the higher level of uh, hierarchy i was well covered nobody was even like asking you know my uh, my identity so i was quite well 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 preserved uh, so that nobody can track me back but of course on the lower level of the gendarmes who were participating on the arrestation on the operation some of them started to talk you know because they they've seen me before in the gendarme the gendarmerie talking with the with the boss and then you know a few days after the operation i got a phone call from a brother of the poacher or the trafficker arrested and he said hey we know that you are the you are from the from one ngo and uh, the gendarmes told us that you are not the uh, you know a victim of the operation but you are the the cause of the operation so of course you can fight against it by creating other stories and and so on but uh, the suspicion is already there they have no proofs they have no names they have no they have nothing but of course uh, you you cannot re- rely on 100% professionalism of of everyone uh, and this is not something which counts uh, for africa this is something which counts for all over the world i guess aren't you afraid um of your for your life when you investigate this black market i try to judge all the risks uh, ahead also the several years of loose uh, collaboration with the eagle network uh, taught me some strategies you know how to how to be covered how, how to prevent events to have bad events to happen how to um, have a set of actions you know to be done in case of mishap i'm usually ready to to undergo certain risk and i know or i think that i know where the risks start to be too high so that i can i would say no i don't go there and or i, I stop the communication or I, i pass it to the professionals from from the eagle because uh, in your film uh, there was this part where they talked about rangers uh, who killed mm, no mm. who were killed i mm. was it in the ojala There was in Chad, in Zakuma, in Chad. Yeah, in Zakuma, and because the the poachers made revenge on these rangers and they they killed them while they were praying. Yes, that was a very ugly story mm, happening in uh, late 2012 or beginning of 2013. Mm, really uh, leaving uh, six six good rangers dead. Most of my investigations were happening in Congo, southern Cameroon also northern cameroon but mainly in the regions or environments which are not so brutal the events happening in in zakuma and around these areas are not far from darfur you know from south sudan from northern car this is really a tough country and uh, i was not involved in investigations there i was involved in you know some monitoring or or elephant collaring or i was i was assisting the zakuma national park there for a few months but uh, it's true that carrying an investigation there with those guys uh, would be far more dangerous than in the regions where I, where i do it mm-hmm. so yeah it varies in you know it depends on the region because you've been investigating the market for a couple of years now and i was wondering whether you are not conspicuous to the smugglers because like 
you helped arrest a few of them now so don't they know about you <laughs> or are these countries just too big that yes you hit yeah, yeah you hit it uh, africa is huge there is a billion of people i'm not uh, overall known in those countries uh, i'm not you know starring in the local media i'm not trying to to, to be visible i have you know several names uh, so i have several phone numbers so even if somebody suspects me and he confronts it to someone other from another country or region or city, they might find that they talk about a different person and it's still me. So, But of course, there is a general perception that white guys, young white guys, usually in my age and so on, usually men, uh, can be dangerous. It was easier to carry out investigations back in 2012 than today because of that. So, of course, the professional organizations try to not um, use only the same type of uh, investigators at the same time. And they mix ages and sexes and races and origins and so on. And uh, do you also come into uh, direct contact with poachers? Because I'm wondering, like, um, why, why they kill the elephants? Is it just because money or are there... Several times in the past uh, and even now I, I would be able to call a few numbers who belong to poachers and they simply poach because it's one of the alternative for for their livelihoods, um, for their living and because of the lack of risk. I, I know some who stopped to poach because it was way too risky. They just judged it to be not rentable anymore and they switched to something else or they, you know, they moved somewhere else to do something else. But generally poachers poach because they can. And until recently in all these countries we were talking about, there was not a single conviction of, a real conviction of, for instance, the traffickers. It was only with the advent of the of the Laga and and Eagle Network projects that the trafficking smuggling started to be taken seriously into account, and not only, you know, in on the paper written in the law, but even in reality, the guys can be convicted in case of Congo from two to five years uh, in jail. And how many have been convicted? Uh, I can't say but it would be easy to look at the website uh, and in most of the countries where these projects function it is from several to several dozens of individuals convicted per year and it's only thanks to this organization laga yeah that was the first one to to bring this this approach of application of the law they were not rewriting the law the, the law already existed it was just a matter of uh, application of the law And since they started in early 2000 in Cameroon and a few years later in Congo, Gabon and other countries respectively, that the local ministry got the idea or you know, just simply started to respect the law and say, yes, we can really put them into, in front of trial and to jail. It's not easy. Very often it fails. There are corruption, corruption attempts, attempts, there are uh, threats, there are... Uh, you know, traffic of influence, there is a nepotism and clientelism and all these kind of shit happening almost every single trial, but uh, it can achieve uh, the, the goal. And the best country in terms of the ratio between arrests and convictions is Gabon, thanks to the organization from the Laga, uh, from the Eagle family. And it's probably also not uh, 
uh, a surprise that it's and I would not say that it's only because of the organization and the leader uh, themselves, but it might be also because of the environment in the country. I mean, the society or the the overall willingness to to protect the, the nature. What what you just said about the law enforcement reminds me what one of my um, previous. Um guest said I talked to Tilo Nadler who is a famous primatologist in Vietnam and he protects langurs and he said that um, in a country like Vietnam which is often uh, the country that uh, receives a lot of um, a lot of tusks and mm -hmm. a lot of these um, uh, wildlife products uh, so the only thing that is in effective in combating the illegal trade is <clears throat> strict law enforcement and high prosecutions that's absolutely right and Vietnam is one of the country who really needs to <laughs> to to take it more seriously because uh, the role of, of Vietnam in the international trade of everything uh, increases within the last couple of years One reason might be the overall increase of wealth of the citizens, but uh, all of this is facilitated by the corruption and by the uh, by the lack of governance on the on the official places. So, yeah, he was definitely 100% right. But how do you want to lower the demand for ivory in Asia? Because that's what's driving this, right? Yes, we also acknowledge this as one of the main problem and uh, in the past years we've had several ideas uh, some of them are still not ready to or not not out yet but at least one of our campaign is already uh, ready to be spread um, it can be found on our website under the hashtag evil worry a combination of the evil and ivory and this shows a set of photographs showing the chain or you know the way Of, of the ivory poach in the bush all the way to the final consumer, which was uh, an Asian girl using it for, for earrings and so on. And uh, we've translated this visual campaign to several international languages, mainly, of, on, mainly to Asian languages, and we welcome everyone to help us spreading that through social media or physically in no public places, uh, organizations, companies, and so on. And is it happening in Asia? Yes, uh, we have several collaborators in some of the countries, not all of the countries we wish, but uh, yes, some of our volunteers already already contacted and offered these to local organizations or institutions. So it is already to be uh, to be found in some places, but that campaign to be, or any other campaign to be, uh, to be successful, it requires, of course, you know, millions or billions of views. And, and uh, therefore we welcome every resharing or every individual help of people who can who can spread it especially to the asian countries all right um let, let's talk about one more project uh it's called detection dogs and um so just a short intro in 2014 you introduced detection dogs in ojala kokua national park and chiponga sanctuary in the republic of congo how efficient are these dogs in detecting ivory these uh now two packs of uh Sniffer dogs or detection dogs started in 2014, originally in one project in Brazzaville, and they have been um, 
trained to sniff out raw ivory, worked ivory, and then all of other sorts of wildlife products from pangolin scales, leopard skins, bushmeat, which is a vast problem in Congo Basin, uh, and ammo and uh, guns, of course. And uh, then by time, after years of my personal involvement, uh, I was the manager and main trainer, main fun fundraiser for this pro for this project. We successfully handed it uh, over to the national park in, in the north of the country and to the reserve in the south, managed by African Parks and Jen Goodall Institute, respectively. And since then, they work uh, more or almost independently from our organization to date, which I, I considered as a, as a great success. I'm happy for that and for them. Uh, and uh, they have the great capacity of detect all sorts of uh, things. Uh, but their biggest contribution is not only the rate of positive uh, detections and seizures or arrests, but it is the psychological aspect of the work. Because once people, you know, civilians, military guys, among them, of course, some poachers, some traffickers, when they see those dogs on the checkpoint and they see that this dog is capable of detecting a small piece of something, let's say a small piece of smoked bushmeat among a whole fully loaded uh, bus, for instance. Uh, you know, they got the idea, wow, we cannot pass through here with our big stock of pangolin scales because we would be we would be detected detected so it's a big psychological work there has been done several researches on on that in the past from other areas and i've really witnessed it in the past so for me their main contribution is uh, that uh, then of course they have uh, they have daily seizures but not daily seizures of ivory because uh, partially it's probably because of that that uh, the poachers are clever, uh, the poachers and traffickers, they are clever enough and the big guys really wait until either the dogs are not there because they cannot be there 100% of the time or they just use another route or they maybe use a, a car of a general which we don't, we, we don't uh, search, you know. So there have not been big detections of big quantities of ivory, but they have been really daily or almost daily and sometimes multiple a day detections and seizures of mainly bushmeat, sometimes pangolin scales, which is a big problem. Pangolins are, yes. are gone towards extinction, both in Asia and now it started in Africa as well. Uh, sometimes leopard skin, ammunition. Just recently, uh, the pack, the, the, the canine unit based in Chimpunga with the Jane Institute, they work uh, already in the full uh, region out of the reserve uh, on the main road and uh, I've got a picture of uh, two living pangolins uh, seized that are later you know released back to the wild uh, and a box of uh, hunting ammo so we all I'm personally I'm always happy when of course we see live animals in good shape good health ready to be directly released uh, in a safer place um, than they have been caught and when we seize ammunition, because every single bullet, you know, can uh, can save at, at least one animal's life. And uh, it's great that uh, these illegal hunting equipment and bullets, uh, you know, just just disappear from the from the circulation. 
so we still have to wait for the big ivory seizures. Uh, we've had some, you know, smaller uh, ivory items and, and so on. Uh, so, and on daily basis training, uh, we know that the dogs are able to, to sniff it out. It just uh, happened that until now, unfortunately, these uh, two packs, they were not allowed, not able to work on the main, main international big scale trafficking hubs. You know, despite our wish and our efforts to date, they still cannot work at the two international airports in Congo and they cannot enter the main port because of a lack of will or from the official places, maybe because of... Uh, Their ties. They ties, yeah, but this is, you know, of course, all this is just uh, suspicion. But simply, uh, we've always uh, hit a wall, different reasons, uh, different... You know, it can be ignorance, it can be just, sometimes it can be a personal reason that this guy doesn't like the guy running the project and so on and so on. It's uh, a complicated story. So r now we are happy that at least uh, they can perform the work on the land checkpoints. Uh, their action radius is, you know, huge in both places. It can stretch, you know, a few hundred kilometers uh, from their bases. Uh, north to south and east to west and uh, and they have results they don't have results in terms of you know hundreds of kilo of, uh, of ivory yet but they definitely have the capacity so once once they overgo the restrictions uh, I know it will come one day and are you still pushing for the docks to be uh, allowed to these two airports or it, or did you um, toss the idea away no, we didn't toss it to the garbage, but we still, I mean, there is still a lot of work even on the existing, uh, you know, modus operandi of the canine units, uh, still of training, retraining and, and so on. But definitely, yes, the, the idea still exists. And, uh, and now, especially the Jengula Institute uh, probably wants to, to push it further to broaden their range of interventions. And aren't two canine units too less for the whole country? To be really effectively blocked, the black ivory and other wildlife market to be effectively blocked in Congo, it would definitely require more sniffer dog units. Uh, I would imagine one in Brazzaville, second in Pont Noir, maybe third on the border with Cameroon, uh, and then several others in the protected areas. So. Yeah, maybe if we double or triple the size, that would be, would be great. My big dream is to incorporate not only sniffer dogs who can sniff out items from the contraband, but also tracking dogs who can be deployed in the field to directly track human footprints and lead us to either poacher's home or hiding place of a rifle or a set of uh, snares, uh, you know, to hunt animals or a dead elephant or an injured elephant or a poacher's camp or the poacher itself in the in the field this is something which which can be done uh, which is being done in other countries drc uh, south africa and so on and i wish to be able to to push that through one day in congo or in the countries i know and uh, that would require more money that we used in the past for the sniffer sniffer dogs uh, but I already have the set of uh, contacts, um, both in Czech Republic and in Africa, who are able to technically do that. 
who have the dogs, who have the knowledge, who have the experience, it would just require the money and then, of course, the paperwork and, and the diplomacy. But it is doable and uh, I'm sure it will have great results if properly grasped. So this is one of your uh, future plans, right? Yes. Uh, to increase the uh, the size or um, the number of these uh, canine units and also uh, increase the um, differentiate their their capacities mm -hmm, yes. mm -hmm. and i um, so one question is like okay the dogs come they sniff out the ivory or any other items and what happens next the people have to get out of the bus and um, they have to find they have to find out someone who owns it right maybe someone says oh no it's not mine so so like what's the procedure there must be a procedure of uh, tracking whose luggage is uh, which luggage is uh, for what person sometimes we we achieve it because they have name tags or you know sometimes people people think that we will not be able to find it so they even say yeah that's my luggage but then they are surprised that the dog finds something uh, inside so sometimes it's easy sometimes it's uh, more difficult or impossible uh, so yes this is a this is the part of the of the job which needs to be professionalized and i wish my colleagues who now run the project after me to to really focus on this because it is uh, not only the question of the speed of the control and of the comfort and you know health of of the of the unit but also uh, a question of uh, risk and danger for everyone but uh, so once you wrote down the identity of the person did they sit back on the bus and went away or were they uh, put into jail or did they have to follow a procedure this of course depends on the gravity of their of uh, their trespassing of the law in most cases the animals which were or parts of the animals which were trafficked uh, as bushmeat were not in the highest protected category therefore there was no space of pursuing them um, and putting in those people into jail so or not even giving them a fine giving them a fine yes but it's in african conditions when people or central african conditions to be precise when people don't have uh, nobody track them you know where they live they don't have like an address many towns even don't have addresses you know and you can't you can't pursue those guys later to pay them later and you know ask or forcing them to pay on the on the spot is tricky because very often they don't have money and we don't have capacity to to block them there forever you know it's so sometimes the fines in these central african conditions don't really work well so either you just take the identity you say that next time by recidivism it can you know it can uh, be more punishable than the first time uh, first time crime or first time uh, of non respecting the law so you take the identity and when the animals are not in the highest highly protected category they can go but of course you seize the you seize the items and this is the big fight because people really fight for every kilo of the bushmeat because they they need it or they argue that they need it as a gift for the family or for their boss on or it is not for me this is for my boss who sent me now i'll be fired etc etc many stories a lot of shouting and so on uh, so we have to be fast you have to be decisive i was mainly the bad guy to be really decisive and yeah that's why uh, i was the one to be blamed but uh, of course when you find something as the ammunition uh, illegally held gun or highest protected category which can be leopard skin pangolin scales some 
species of monkeys on and others and others uh, you have the right to 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 get the guy ask him to step out and you call the gendarmerie or you transfer them directly which is a better better way you transfer them directly to the procurator in the nearest uh, regional regional capital and then you can pursue the process if you if you if you if you judge that it is worth it and if you if you judge that uh, you have the chances of for conviction mm -hmm. and so have you seen any uh, improvement um, or in reducing the the load of bushmeat that's coming from the from these two national parks after you've introduced these dogs yes i personally have seen a like really substantial drop uh, in the relative size of the of the shipments and even in the absolute you know volume and uh, one of the biggest proof of that of course it's indirect indirect sometimes some somebody would argue that it's a question of uh, you know coincidence or it can have another proof but for me as i know the as i know how it works there and from years of experience i i consider it as a as a big proof a situation when after almost a year and a half of a almost daily presence of the dogs on the particular checkpoint uh, we see bushmeat almost on a daily basis usually non-protected species usually few kgs of bushmeat sometimes you know living dwarf crocodiles sometimes turtles sometimes uh, small antelopes and smoked monkeys it doesn't look great but it's not the the biggest crime to be done in congo you know like small small scale seizures and the biggest during all this uh, this time made by the dogs was around 80 kilo if i'm not mistaken so two big bags you know nothing super super huge and after this year and a half of the steady presence of the dogs they got to move out it was due to due to veterinary reasons they were sick and we were afraid that whether it has been poisoning or not so we, we we've moved them out of the checkpoint and imagine after two weeks of their absence there was a truck loaded with three tons of bushmeat i mean it was a truck there was no dissimulation in you know small bags it was just full of bushmeat of different uh, uh, different sort of animals and these guys just and it has been discovered because it was so it was big so for the ranger it was sufficient to open the door and smell already something because you can you cannot not smell this amount so it has been seized of course you know so i see a huge disproportion between what was like the average daily seizure when the dogs were there, few kilos or few dozens of kilo maximum, and three tons when the dogs were not there. And for me, you know, that's a proof that the dogs' uh, controls have a have a huge, huge role in the psychological aspect of the of the trade. Not only bushmeat trade, but hopefully also in the ivory trade. But as I said, the hard data for ivory. Uh, it's not available in case of our work there, but I believe this. I, I strongly believe this. And speaking of the bushmeat, is is the demand? The demand is local, right? It's within Congo. Uh, yeah, the truth is that in most cases the bushmeat is really for. I would not say local because I consider local as really local, meaning village and small town and around. Um, mainly for like a regional consumption. The problem is not the subsistence hunting. For in the local villages for 
uh, assuring their their nutrition needs in most cases the big problem is the urban urban demand because uh, in central africa and other places of the world but it's really pronounced in central africa Uh, the perception of bushmeat as as the best meat available survives in people's minds even in the urban areas which grows you know the, the human population grows and they are of course more rich than the villagers so they can afford the meat that's a problem and they want it more often also in europe you know and especially in the us like eating meat is somehow in our mind considered as as the right way that you know we we can afford it and we need it for our survival so we eat as much as we can In Africa, it's the same story. Unfortunately, they they don't destroy our nature by you know rearing cattle in, in intensive farming and destroying prairies, but they they eat it uh, from the bushmeat from the wild sources. It's just another angle of the problem of eating meat in such huge quantities. So while the villager doesn't really eat it daily or sometimes not even weekly probably uh, the people in the in the towns and centers want it and they can afford it so the trafficking occurs between forests villagers and and uh, capitals and big cities and in some instances also mm, internationally uh, because there is a huge community of recently uh, you know recently emigrated people in west western europe belgium france uh, you know england and so on from africa of african origin you know with the first or second generation of africans living there and they still have the concept of bushmeat as a delicacy or status symbol so there are researchers so there are surveys and studies uh, to be found uh, on google that uh, say that they are you know it can be tens of tons maybe even hundreds of tons of bushmeat going to europe through charles de gaulle and uh, and other other places in europe and why don't i mean ugh, that's just horrible even charles de gaulle airport isn't able to to find it no they are not because the volume of international travelers travels increases by year except of the last two years i guess some of the airports don't have sniffer dogs some of them do but uh, cannot be deployed all the time probably in Czech republic we do have wildlife wildlife sniffer dogs which is a great success uh, we also train the sniffer dogs for other countries here in our customs facility uh, but these dogs and other you know can be scanners can be uh, physical searches the capacity is still not enough to mm, perceive uh, everything and yeah the seizures represent just a fraction of what, what's going through so now um i would like to ask you a few last question about elephants i read in one of the reports uh, that between 2013 and 2019 you spent 10 to 11 months in africa But since 2020, you've been spending most of your time in the Czech Republic, going to Africa only for a shorter expedition. So given that most of the investigations of the illegal market depend on you, how sustainable is the work of safe elephants in this aspect? Uh, we, and this is linked to some of your first questions uh, of how am I able to still be safe uh, among the traffickers. The level of my personal involvement in the investigations gradually, you know, declines over the years because 
because of course I cannot repeat the same approach or the same story uh, again and again. Uh, it, can, it cannot be a never-ending story. So first I uh, I limit somehow my activities in the investigations, and second. Uh, some of it can be moved to the online space. You know, people have WhatsApp and, and Skype and so on. And with the uh, time, I have more confidence, of course, with my local collaborators, which, which who can uh, assure, you know, big part of the of the work in the field, talking with the people, with the traffickers, and I intervene when it's necessary. Maybe you know, in the final stage of the investigations or and so on. Sometimes we consider that it is way too difficult for us, for safe elephants, to handle this, and we pass the information to WCS or, or uh, Eagle. And what's your plan for the future, let's say for the next 10 years, in terms of how much time you want to spend in, uh, in Africa and how much time you want to dedicate to safe elephants? I can imagine all sort of scenarios, and uh, right now I'm quite happy as... Uh, for the situation as it is by now. I, I see, of course, that uh, to be more effective, I would need more time in Africa. But, you know, actually there is slight contradiction between this requirement and some personal, say, freedom and, uh, and financial uh, ability to do that. But unlike all the decade or all the past decade when I... Uh, I've been mainly living in the nomadic style of life, uh, you know, within these countries, and I've never had a one single like African home. It was a few weeks here, a few days there, then I moved to another country, then I came back. So I was actually living, uh, and my household was my backpack, and I knew exactly what is in my backpack. And then I got, I've got, of course, other stuff in all different places, but I've never got like a room which was my home or one area, and I liked. I, I like it, you know, even maybe with the time and age increasing. I would love to have a, one place in Africa or two or, you know, but at least a base which I can consider as a second home and gradually starting to spend even more time than today there uh, and a, a place which would also be able to, to welcome and sustain maybe other future members of my family, uh, inshallah. Thank you so much, Arthur, for the interview and thank you for the incredible work that you are doing. It's so important for elephants and not only for them, because it's important for a whole range of other animals, because mm. by protecting the big mammals, you protect also a lot of other animals and ecosystems. So thank you very much for the interview and for your work. Veronica, thank you for the invitation. I was happy to talk and I wish you good luck with editing because it was a long, long interview. Yeah, it was. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about Safe Elephants, go to the website safe-elephants.org slash en and check their Facebook and Instagram. Thanks a lot for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like these, you can subscribe to Nature Solutionaries on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Stitcher. See you next time.